Today's scripture comes from the book of Esther, chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes the, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the woman in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Meumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zithar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memucon, the seven nobles of Persia and uh, Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. The Memucon replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong not only against a king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the, all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucon proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom 
to each province in his own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if you're uh, new to our community, uh, there are two ways that we approach our sermon series. Uh, sometimes we preach topically, and so we take a look at various topics like uh, uh, our DNA or Advent or our Go campaign. The other way that we approach sermon series is not just topically, but we preach through books of the Bible. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there, on the one hand, it's one book, but the Bible is also composed of 66 books. So in many ways, the Bible is like a library. But even though it is composed of 66 books, and all 66 books are distinct and unique, uh, they are all related as well. And so the 66 books in many ways form a single tapestry or one major storyline where Jesus is the central figure and hero of the book. And so today we're going to be, and for the next seven weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Esther. Now, why are we preaching through the book of Esther uh, in particular? Well, one of the unique features about the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned once throughout the book of Esther. He is completely absent and devoid of the book. In fact, there is really nothing religious at all about the book of Esther. There's no mention of prayer, worship, sacrifices, temples, prophets, priests, miracles. No, nothing. As the book of Esther is so devoid of religion that the Protestant reformer Martin Luther actually wanted the book of Esther stricken from the Bible. So why are we taking a look at it today and for the next seven weeks? Well, I think one of the things that... Uh, the book of Esther means when it says that, you know, there's no mention of God is that I, I do think that it points to the fact that Esther's world and Esther's culture was very much a secular culture. She was a religious minority living in, living in a predominantly secular culture, a world very much like our own. And so I know that sometimes implicitly our posture is the Bible, it's great, but it answers the questions of yesterday. It doesn't really answer the questions of today. But one of the things that I hope that we'll see as we take a look at uh, the book of Esther is that it very much has to deal with the questions of today. But before we take a look at the life of Esther, I want us to first begin this story by taking a look at the life of King Xerxes. And so if you take a look with me at verse one, <clears throat> It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. The very first phrase of verse one says, this is what happened. Uh, if you take a look at ancient history, the phrase this is what happened is oftentimes the way that most historical books uh, begin. And the reason why I mention this is because Esther doesn't begin with once upon a time but it begins with, this is what happened. In other words, the Bible is not rooted in fiction, but it is deeply rooted in history. The Bible is not the same thing as Aesop's Fable or Lord of the Rings, but it is a historical book with real historical characters, real historical setting. And verse one talks about a character, a character in particular named Xerxes. And Xerxes is not only mentioned in the Bible, but Xerxes is also written about in the works of historians such as Herodotus. And if you've ever seen the movie 300, it's based upon the life of 
King Xerxes and the 300. So all this to say, again, what's happening here, what we're reading about, this is not a fictional fairy tale. This really happened in history 2,500 years ago. And as we take a look at verse 1, it gives a little description about the life of Xerxes, and it talks about how he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Uh, sometimes uh, people don't think that uh, the Bible talks about anything else other than Israel, but here we see the, uh, uh, the mention of an Asian country, India, stretching all the way to Kush, which is another way of saying Northern Africa. All this to say that uh, King Xerxes was a very rich, wealthy, powerful, and influential figure. And if you take a look with me at verses 2 to 4, it says, At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, I don't know if uh, any of you have hosted Thanksgiving dinner before or Christmas dinner before. You know that that in itself is extremely exhausting. Now imagine hosting Thanksgiving for 180 consecutive days, and this is what took place. And when we read this passage, it says the reason why this banquet took place for 180 days was for Xerxes to display his glory, his splendor, and his majesty. And after the 180-day banquet was over, there was another banquet for the next seven days. And if you take a look at uh, verses 5 through 8, it says, <clears throat> When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one in different color from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So here you have a description of what the palace looked like. It talks about some decor made of purple uh, material, and in the ancient world, purple was a very hard color to dye. And so if anyone had anything made of purple, it was a measure of their status, that they had uh, wealth and some kind of influence. It's the equivalent of us wearing brand names. You know, coloring, you know, making dyes of certain colors is very easy for us, but when we wear a certain brand name, it sort of signifies something, and that's what purple was. And when you read the rest of the passage, it talks about how uh, Xerxes didn't have gold rings or gold coins, but he had gold couches. I don't know what that looks like, but that gives you an idea of how affluent Xerxes was. In other words, Xerxes was living what we would call the good life. And as I was reading Esther chapter one this week, I was reminded of an article that I had read some years ago about a man named Marcus Person. Now, some of you know who Marcus Person is, but Person is a Swedish engineer who co-designed and co-founded the video game Minecraft. And if you don't know what Minecraft is, Minecraft is Googled more, I found out this week, more than the Bible, Harry Potter, and Justin Bieber. That is, 
that gives you an idea of how popular Minecraft is. But maintaining Minecraft took so much out of Marcus Person that eventually he wanted to give it up, and so he did. And at the age of 35, he sold Minecraft to Microsoft, not for $1 million, not for $1 billion, but he sold it for $2.5 billion, a video game, $2.5 billion. And person says he never wanted to be the rich guy that always saved his money. He actually wanted to spend it and spend it he did. Uh, he was notorious for spending upwards of up to $180,000 per night at Las Vegas uh, nightclubs. In fact, person later on would go on to buy the most expensive home in Beverly Hills, a home he outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for their 50 million, their measly 50 million for his 70 million. Let me give you a description of what this home looks like. The 23,000 square foot mansion includes an infinity pool with iPad controlled fountains, 15 bathrooms, an 18 seat movie theater, three high defi definition televisions that can screen panoramic views of LA from the roof, vodka and tequila bars, a replica of James Dean's motorcycle, cases of Dom Perignon, and a 16 car garage. The house came complete with its own candy room, and you really have to Google this candy room. It is absolutely impressive. When you take a look at the home, which I did, uh, it actually looks like the home of Iron Man, Tony Stark. That's literally what it looks like. And yet, despite having everything, everything, he was completely empty. And I want to actually read you on the first page of your bulletin one of his tweets. <clears throat> and this is what person says, hanging out in Ibiza, which is uh, an island off of Spain in the Mediterranean, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want. And I've never felt more isolated. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. Now, how is it that someone with everything has, feels a sense of emptiness in, the, in their life? And one of the reasons for that is because some people are so rich, some people are so rich, all they have is money. They have no meaning, they have no purpose, they have no friends, they have no community. Some people are so rich, all they have is money. And an empty person or an unsatisfied person looks like this. Imagine a person that is dehydrated and parched and so thirsty. And this empty person is standing before an ocean. And because they're so dehydrated, they get a bucket a bucket and they fill it up with ocean water and they're about to drink it because they're so parched. And so you, you yell at them and say, no, don't drink it. Ocean water, it's great to look at, it's great to walk along, it's great to swim in, it's great to surf on, but ocean water was never meant to quench your thirst. And similarly, it is with money, fame, power, all those things are good. They're not bad, but they were never meant to quench your thirst, the emptiness that you feel. 
If you take a look at the second quote, Jim Carrey from his own Twitter handle says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it is not the answer. And what person is saying, what Jim Carrey is saying, what the Bible is saying, what Plato would say is that humans, we are all leaky jars. No matter how much we try to fill ourselves with different things, a hedonistic life, uh, doing different things, being wealthy, whatever, no matter how much we try to fill our hearts up, we will always be half full, if not completely empty. I like the way that Alistair McGrath puts it in his book, Intellectuals Don't Need God and Other Modern Myths, and he says this, have you ever noticed what happens when you want something very badly and then you get it? A new job, a marriage partner, an important qualification, a pay raise, you begin by longing for it. When I get this, I shall be satisfied and ask for nothing more. But it doesn't work out like that at all. When you finally get your heart's desire, it doesn't seem to satisfy. You want more. You want something else. It seems that nothing finite can satisfy some deep sense of longing within us. But where does that sense of longing come from? And is there any way in which this bittersweet yearning could be satisfied? And obviously, the, what we would say, the only thing that can really satisfy the abyss in our hearts, the only thing big enough is really God himself. But here we see the life of Xerxes who has everything, and yet he feels an emptiness inside. And the story continues in verses 9 through 12. And it says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was, high, was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious, and he burned with anger. And as we take a look at verses 9 through 12, there are two parties that are going on. There's one that is hosted by Queen Vashti, which is basically a sorority party with all women. And then there's a, another party that is hosted by King Xerxes, which is basically a fraternity party with all men. And this passage says that on the seventh day, uh, on the final day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, which is a charitable way of saying that he was completely drunk, uh, when he was in high spirits from wine, he, he asked his seven servants to go and ask Queen Vashti to come. But instead of coming, she refused. Now, why did she refuse? I think a very educated guess is the reason why Queen Vashti did not want to come is because he was going to make her do things that she did not want to do in front of everyone. She did not want to be dehumanized, undignified, or um, uh, objectified in any way. And so she puts her foot down. And I think as we take a look at this passage, before we criticize and judge King Xerxes and these men for their uh, barbaric, misogynistic womanizing, we first have to look at the mirror at ourselves. One of the things that our generation is going to be known for is the Me Too generation. And of course, the Me Too movement began largely because of men and our barbaric, misogynistic, womanizing ways. Just because we as modern people have advanced technologically, 
scientifically, it does not mean that we automatically advance morally. Apparently, over the past 2,500 years, not much has changed with the human condition or the human heart. Furthermore, new studies show that as modern people, we are having sex less than ever before. Now, how does that sort of validate what I just said before? Well, one of the reasons why we as modern people are having less sex than ever before is not because our sexual desires have decreased. That is not the case. We are not having less sex because our sexual desires have decreased. We are having less sex because our pragmatism has increased. Having sex can be a hassle, it can be expensive, and it can be emotionally very messy. It is far more pragmatic far easier to watch pornography on your own computer and to masturbate. That's the reason why sexual activity has actually decreased in our modern society today. And when you're watching whatever you're watching on the computer, that actually, because of technology, that actually promotes even more so the denigration of women in particular. Just because we have advanced scientifically and technology-wise uh, technology does not mean that our hearts uh, have advanced morally speaking. Did you know that today, one out of six women will be sexually abused in one way or another during their lifetime? Uh, one out of, sorry, one out of four women, one out of six men will be sexually abused at one time in their life. If you're a female between the ages of 16 to 19, you are four times more likely to be sexually abused than any other demographic today. And if I could tell you some of the stories that I hear from people in our own community that has happened to them, it would make you weep. Particularly because they don't know how to deal with what happened to them in the past. It would make you weep. And so before we are too quick to judge King Xerxes and these men for their barbaric and primitive ways, we must first look at the mirror at ourselves and what we are doing today. The apple does not fall far from the tree. But to Vashti's credit, she puts her foot down and she is not willing to be denigrated in this fashion. And as a result of that, the passage says that Xerxes is furious. And the reason why he's furious is, again, the point of this banquet the point of this banquet was to display his glory and his splendor, but now his glory and his splendor is being questioned. He is being undermined. And because this is the way that Xerxes garners a sense of identity, and Vashti is questioning that foundation, he is fuming. And the reason for that is Xerxes was engaging in something that we all engage in, and that is what Ernest Becker, the Pillar Surprise winner, winning author would say, uh, immortality projects. We all engage in immortality projects. For Xerxes, that was conquering the world, being the richest and most powerful man in the world. Our immortality projects, not quite as ambitious, not quite as big, but you and I, we all have our own immortality projects, whether it be our career, having the American dream, the perfect family, we all have and engage in our own immortality projects. And whenever something or someone even comes close to threatening that, we respond in two ways. Either hatred and anger, like Xerxes, or self-hatred. Either hatred or self-hatred. So I'll give you an example. If someone is threatening our career, 
we can respond with hatred, blackmail, slandering them, gossiping them, or uh, wrecking their career or not helping them in any way, causing them to fall. Or we can respond with self-hatred. I'm a loser. I'm a nobody. I'm worthless. I'm never going to come out of my room. Your immortality project could be your two kids and your dog and the perfect white picket fence tone. But whenever something threatens that, like maybe a sickness to one of your children, you can respond with hatred. God, why are you doing this? And so you ghost on him and disappear from him for the rest of your life. Or you can respond with hatred toward your children and anger. Why aren't you performing the way that you should be performing and you turn into a tiger mom or a tiger dad? Or instead of responding with hatred toward your kids and to God, you can turn this into self-hatred. I'm a nobody. I'm a terrible mom. I'm a terrible dad. I can't compare it to any of the other moms and dads that I see on Instagram. Whenever something threatens our immortality project, we can re either respond with hatred or self-hatred. And, and the reason for that is because we are all controlled by it. If you look on the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you something from Becky Pippert's book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And she says, whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. And we all have a Lord of our life that we are controlled by. And so because Vashti refuses to come and Xerxes wanted, wants to save his face, uh, he consults his seven advisors on what to do, and you have to see the irony of this because why doesn't he just talk to Vashti himself if that is his wife? Why does he have to talk to his advisors about what to do to his wife? And the reason for that is because this is an empire that is strangled by its own bureaucracy. Not only does Xerxes not know how to rule his home, but he does not know how to rule his kingdom. He is not as powerful as it seems. And so he consults his advisors on what to do, and they say two things. Number one, we think you should banish Queen Vashti from your presence and from this palace to never come again. But the second thing that we recommend is that all wives in your entire kingdom, they should obey everything that their husbands say. And you can almost see all the men in the room, you know, beating their chests and, and, and making gorilla noises at how wonderful this is. But think about how ridiculous that is for a moment. It is possible that a husband could be wrong, is it not? It is possible that once in a while, the wife could be right. But to banish the wife just because she doesn't listen or agree with what the husband has to say? You see, Xerxes thinks he's actually strengthening his kingdom, his society, when in fact he is actually weakening it. And as I was reading Esther 1 this week, <clears throat> talking about kings and queens and kingdoms and stuff like that, it was hard not to think about politics. And I don't think over the past four years I've ever talked about anything very political, and that's for a reason, by the way. Um, but it's hard not to think about politics just a little bit when you read a passage like this. And this past week I read a relatively unknown essay by C.S. Lewis called Equality. And in this essay, Lewis talks about the importance of democracy and that we need democracy, frankly, because people are sinners and people cannot be trusted. One man, one woman cannot have unparalleled power over their fellow man. And so Lewis talks about the importance of democracy. However, implicit within the essay, 
he talks about how monarchy is embedded within the human imagination. How that there is a need for authority uh, intertwined with our nature. And the reason for that is because we are creatures made by a creator. And Lewis talks about how if we're not going to bow our knee to God the King, we will bow our knee to something. And so here is the question. Because what Esther 1 is really about is this. King Xerxes, it's talking about how great uh, he is, his glory, his splendor, and his majesty. And the point of Esther 1 is to juxtapose King Xerxes next to another king, King Jesus, who is also glorious, powerful, full of majesty and splendor. Now, why should we bow our knee to one king versus the other? What is the difference between the two? When you take a look at King Xerxes' life, he wanted to denigrate and shame Queen Vashti. But when you take a look at Jesus the king, the reason why he came was not to denigrate us or to shame us, but the reason why he came was to bear our shame. So that no matter what you have done, whether it is sexual impropriety, abuse, pornography, whatever you have done that you are ashamed about, you are forgiven. He came to lift our chin up to say it is okay. That no matter what has happened to you or no matter what you have done to others, you are forgiven. Because he is not the kind of king that came to, to, to kill his enemies, to shed their blood, but he is the type of king that came to shed his blood for the sake of his enemies. In many ways, Jesus his game plan is the complete opposite of the game of chess. In the game of chess, one of your main strategies is to protect your king at all costs, even at the expense of the pawn's life, even at the expense of the queen's life. But when Jesus came, he did not come to protect himself, but he came to sacrifice himself, to willingly die. Why? For our sins. He is the complete opposite of King Xerxes, and I like the way that Tim Keller puts it, in your final quote, and this is what he says. Despite Jesus' high claims, he is never pompous. You never see him standing on his own dignity. Despite being absolutely approachable to the weakest and broken, he is completely fearless before the corrupt and powerful. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence unhesitating authority with a complete lack of self-absorption, holiness and unending convictions without the lack of approachability, power without insensitivity. In other words, he is the complete opposite of King Xerxes, and he is the king that we all need. Now, uh, one, one thing that people say when a king dies is, long live the king. Now, that's ironic, isn't it? Why do people say long live the king when the king dies? When people say long live the king, what they're really saying is long live the kingdom. Because the kingdom in many ways represents the king and everything that the king stood for. And so if we are members of God's kingdom and we serve this kind of king, what does that mean for us as citizens of this kingdom? Well, I think on the one hand, it means that we are to be like our king who came to deny himself and to give his life away. 
And similarly, we are called to do the same. And what that means then is that you don't seek first your kingdom. And we all are little kings and queens of our own kingdom and our own immortality projects. We don't seek first our kingdom, but we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, knowing that all things will be added to us. What does it also mean to be a member of this kingdom? It means that if I believe that Jesus is my king, I don't derive my sense of identity from my job or my career because at that point, my job and my career are my king. It means that I derive my sense of identity from Jesus. What does it mean to be a citizen of this kingdom? It means that when I don't know why things are certain, like happening in my life and I can't explain it, it means that I don't question God for what he is doing. But I humbly submit to whatever his plan might be because if I question God or hate God or run away from him, it means that circumstances are my king and not King Jesus. What does it mean to be a citizen of this kingdom? It means that our greatest political maxim is not God bless America or make America great again, as great as that might be, but it means that our greatest political maxim is the Lord reigns. And because he reigns and he is good, he is in control of all things, and therefore I can sleep at night without insomnia. When you realize that he is the kind of king that we all need and that we are citizens of this kingdom, it gives you the type of fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in life that we all so desperately need. And it makes you a person that lives for something that is bigger than yourself, other than your own tiny little kingdom and our own immortality projects. So I wanna quote Joshua as we wrap up, choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you are the king that we really need. And I'm praying that that would help us not to have a partisan spirit as great as and helpful as politics are, but you would help us to remember that as Christians, we sort of fall along a different party altogether because we serve a different king and kingdom altogether. So help us to be good citizens of this world, but help us also to be good citizens of the kingdom above. In Jesus' name I pray.